Acts chapter 8, we're going to start from verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south of the, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does a prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? 
And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus as he passed through and preached um, the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word to us today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can be gathered here today. This day, this day that your son has risen, this day that we are reminded of that great fact that this, the resurrection of your son, his ascension as Lord is what draws us together as your people. We come from all walks of life. We come from all sorts of backgrounds. We bring all sorts of things uh, to our gathering here today. And so we ask, Father, that you'll help us to bring these forward to you. Whatever our cares, our worries, our struggles, our stresses during the week, may they be laid before you as we hear from your word, as we think about your word, and as your word keeps setting the agenda for our lives, uh, we ask that you'll bless us. Holy Spirit, thank you for preserving this word for us today. Holy Spirit, please be at work now to soften our hearts, to attune our minds to receive this word, to bless us as we receive this word, and then help us respond in faithful obedience. And Lord Jesus, may this be all for your glory and our joy together. For we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples numbered 120. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter first preached, 3,000 people responded to the gospel and gave their lives to Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, more preaching converted 5,000 men alone. And so by the time we get to our chapter here, the church, this fledgling church, this baby church has grown tenfold. It could be upwards of over 10,000 people. As we have leapt across the pages of the book of Acts, it might be tempting to think that God is only interested in big growth, large numbers, seats being filled in churches, more outreach, more growth. But as we turn to our pages this morning, we get two very different stories, two stories about individuals. And we're reminded that God does deal in large numbers, but those large numbers are always made up of individuals, individuals who need to respond to the gospel. And as we'll basically see today, that there are good and bad responses, and that's the basic point of today's passage. We're going to be showing a wrong and a right response to the gospel. The story picks up from where we left off last week. Stephen's death scatters the church, uh, throwing believers outside of Jerusalem. But they aren't just running and hiding. Have a look at verse 4. They are also preaching the word. And wherever believers are, the gospel will be preached. Last week, we saw the appointment of deacons. And in that list, we saw two names, Stephen and Philip. Last week, we had a look at Stephen. And this week, we're going to concentrate on Philip. Now, Philip heads into what we would call enemy territory, Samaria. Samaria and Israel had a very long history, and it was not good. There was a long history of resentment and hatred between the two, running deeper than even Queensland versus New South Wales. For Philip to be there and to be freely preaching is a a big thing. 
See, wherever Jesus is preached, then, you'll notice, too, that people will inevitably convert. That's what we, Philip sees in verses 6 and 7, everyone paying attention, signs and wonders, healings, exorcisms, wherever the gospel goes and breaks new ground, it seems to be accompanied by signs and wonders. Uh, the signs and wonders serve the preaching of the gospel, and the result of this in verse 8, have a look with me, is predictable as it is delightful. At the end of verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. See, that's what hearing about Jesus and receiving and embracing his kingship does to your life. He gives joy. And that joy is shared and multiplied all around the city. Luke then gives us the story of a seemingly unlikely convert. And that's Luke's point in this part of the story. Uh, His point here will be to give us an example of a wrong response to hearing the gospel. See, what we're about to read is a wrong example. So, a bad example. We meet a man named Simon in verse 9. And we find out that not only has he practiced magic, but he also has quite the following. Notice the repetition of phrases through verses 9 to 11. You'll see words like amazed, great, paid attention. Before I move on, is anyone else feeling very warm? I'm feeling very warm here. Maybe we can turn off the air cons now that everyone's here, our body heat combined. All right. Thank you. We'll take care of that. Okay, so you notice again verse 9 to 11, you see these phrases like amazed, great, paid attention, all focused and centered around Simon. What is Luke saying? He's saying that Simon thought of himself as a great man and he loved the attention and the adulation of the crowds. Now, what sort of magic did he practice? Not exactly sure. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've uh, really enjoyed, you know, every, uh, spending five minutes with the kids on my phone watching magic tricks, sleight of hand stuff. And the kids go, wow, that's amazing. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, he hid the ball there and he did this and he tucked it there. Was Simon doing that or was he doing something more demonic? Not exactly sure. Either way... He's gaining quite the attention, drawing a big crowd to himself. The magic uh, he was performing uh, helped him have a widely known reputation, and he loved it. But when Philip comes along, preaching the gospel and doing signs and wonders that are obviously not magic, and notice at the end of verse 13 that Simon is, that Simon is amazed. There's a, there's a movement of amazement here. Previously, everyone was amazed at Simon, and now when Philip comes onto the scene, Simon is amazed at Philip. And then we read in verse 13 that Simon himself believes and is baptized. What a turnaround response, right? What an amazing conversion, right? What a powerful story of turning and from magic and turning to trust Jesus, right? Well, before we get, actually get on to whether Simon's conversion was real or false, there's a little bit of a weird thing that happens here in the passage. Uh, read with me again verses 14 to 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. This kind of sounds like what's being taught here is that after conversion, there is a second event, a moment later on, where believers receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, What's going on here? 
Here's another tip uh, on how to read and interpret the Bible. Remember, we're going to keep dropping these tips through the book of Acts. And the tip is this. Context is king. Context is key. What is happening here in this passage is not normal for the church or the Christian experience. What is happening here is a unique event. Remember, the context here is the key. The Christians, remember, in the previous chapter have just been scattered out of Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus said that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They are preaching the gospel now to these places where Jesus wanted them to preach. Remember, Philip was not an apostle. He was a deacon. And so when the Jerusalem church heard about Samaritans, their enemies converting, well, they had to go and make sure that it was true and genuine. So they sent two apostles. Two apostles seeing this meant that there would be no question that Samaritans, their hated neighbors, no question that God's new church would be inclusive of them. And so John and Peter arrive. They place their hands on the believers and pray, and they witness the Holy Spirit coming down upon them. When the Spirit comes, there is now no question at all that God's church would be inclusive of this group. It didn't matter your race anymore, your ethnicity. It didn't matter your social class or education levels. The only entry requirement into the kingdom of Jesus was faith and trust of the Lord Jesus Christ. This coming of the Holy Spirit well after their baptism was to confirm for the apostles that this was the real deal. And it's also a unique Acts moment, not a normative one for the Christian church. But sometimes sometimes it can be hard to tell the fake from the genuine. A few years ago, I purchased the board game Ticket to Ride. If you've never played this game, it's a fun game. Never play it with Ben because he's a bit of a sore loser. I'm just saying. (laughs) Still holding on to that that move I made when, we'll we'll let that go. Now, I didn't realize that when I bought this game that it was a counterfeit copy. It looked like the genuine real, maybe the fact that it was so cheap on eBay should have given it away. But it looked like, when I got it, it looked like the genuine thing. Until later, I found out that there were some clues that would have given it away. The back of the playing board didn't have the logo of the brand, right? The playing cards were a high-quality plastic, not quite the cardboard that the, other, uh, the original has. Uh, some of the playing pieces, the colors were muted and a bit dull. See, it looked real, but upon closer inspection, it was a fake. Now, back in verse 13, Simon the magician seemingly converts and gets baptized. He is amazed with everyone else at the signs and wonders of Philip. But now he does something that gives away that he may not, he's not the real deal. He is, upon closer inspection, he's a fake, false Christian. Read it with me again, verse 18 and 19. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there could be a way in which we read this where it kind of just sounds like Simon wants to participate in this ministry. He's been so impacted by it. He wants others to share in this. So it sounds like he just wants to be a part of the gospel mission. But then Peter is given insight into his heart and all is revealed. So look at me again at verse 20 to 23. 
But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter sees Simon's heart. And what he sees is not good. It is not right before God. He is filled with wickedness. The intent of his heart is evil and needs forgiveness. Peter says basically in verse 23 that Simon is still trapped in sin. He is not actually converted in his heart. See, on the outside, things looked good. He confessed faith. He got baptized. He was amazed. But inwardly, he still wanted greatness. He still wanted people to be amazed at him. All the attention had gone now to Philip and the apostles. He wanted it back. And he was willing to pay money to the apostles to receive the Holy Spirit so that he could do the amazing things, so that he could get the attention that he had before. He had not changed. His conversion was a false conversion. Now, this goes beyond just tripping into old sin. His, his outward faith was counterfeit. It was not the real deal. And so he is sharply rebuked by Peter and told to repent. But does Simon actually repent? Read again his final words in verse 24. And Simon answered, pray, with me to the, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You see, his final request here is to just pray for me. It's, it's a bit weak. He himself does not pray. At best, we don't know what happened to Simon. And maybe that's Luke's point right at the end. If we don't know what happened to Simon, will we know how we will respond as well? The story is an example of a wrong response to the gospel. Philip found himself in Samaria. He preached. Many converted, were baptized. Simon's conversion was a false conversion. He wanted the gospel and the Holy Spirit so he could continue getting recognition and can continue to build his reputation. Now, if Simon is a bad example, an example of a wrong response, then what we read next is an example of the right response, the best response to hearing the gospel. Shortly after this, Peter is whisked away by the angel, uh, an angel of the Lord, uh, and told to head to a road towards Gaza, near the desert. There we meet a character, an Ethiopian, a nameless man. We don't get his name. Uh, an official to the queen of Ethiopia and the nation's treasurer. And we also find out that he's a eunuch. And so Philip rocks up to this eunuch's chariot, and we find out that the eunuch is reading from the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, let's get a little bit of context here. Isaiah wrote 800 years before Jesus, the birth of Jesus. And the prophet Isaiah, he wrote his massive book to basically warn Israel, you guys are in sin, you need to repent. And then part of his prophecy was also to point them forward to their truest hope, that one day God would send his special servant to save his people and reverse all of this sin and curse. What would God's servant be like? 
Well, in one part of Isaiah, we find out that the servant would be sent, and amazingly, he would become a sacrifice on behalf of the people. God would send someone to take the punishment that his people deserved. An innocent servant would suffer so that his people would not. Isaiah talks about him in chapter 53 of this book, and that's that great moment in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. The same chapter that the eunuch happens to be reading while Philip walks up to him. And so Philip asks a great question in verse 30. Do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch replies brilliantly, how can I unless someone guides me? What an opportunity. This is what we might call low-hanging fruit, right? You know, you go to an orchard or you've got like a a fruit tree uh, and you know there are like, say it's an apple tree and there are some big juicy ripe apples everywhere and there's just this one like right here that you can just reach out and pick. Low-hanging fruit. Now, in terms of evangelism, this moment here is easy. It's perfectly in reach for Philip. So here's what the eunuch was reading. Have a look with me at verse uh, 32 to 33. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb, before its shearers is silent, so he opens his mouth, not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. See, the eunuch asks who Isaiah is talking about. Is is Isaiah talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip opens his mouth and explains his passage in the light of Jesus. Philip would have said that the servant, this servant here in Isaiah, he was innocent. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. He was put in front of a hostile trial. He would not have had a fair hearing. Justice denied. And the only person who ever could fit that description was Jesus Christ. Philip would have then said that Jesus did not die, however, for his sins. He was completely innocent. No, he died. Jesus died as a substitute for us, for you, for me, for the world. Philip then would have said that Jesus did not remain dead, but was now raised back to life. And the other apostles saw it, and that's what makes Isaiah, what Isaiah said here come true. And as Philip explained all of this, who Jesus was, the eunuch listened intently. And like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, a fire was being ignited in his heart, fanned by the Spirit, welling up within him an inexplicable joy because for the first time in his life, he now knew God personally through Jesus. Everything was making sense. Everything was clicking and it was wondrous. And as they're journeying along, they stop by some water and the eunuch knows exactly what to do. Baptism seems to have been a clear ceremony that people knew about. And the eunuch says, what's stopping me from getting baptized? And the answer is nothing. The eunuch wants to get baptized, not because that's just simply the next step that you take in the Christian faith. The eunuch wants to be baptized because baptism is this personal ceremony, this ceremony in which you personally and publicly declare that your identity and your allegiance now belongs to Jesus. Baptism was a visible sign of what had already happened to, internally to this man. And so they jump down and he's baptized and then Philip disappears and look at how the eunuch moves on in verse 39. 
when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. That's what hearing about Jesus and receiving and embracing his kingship does to your life. Jesus gives you joy. And the eunuch returns home rejoicing. So, we have two stories here. With seemingly different points, both making one point in the end. Both stories that are about responding to the gospel. There's a right way to respond, which is basically repentance and faith. And there's a wrong way to want to respond, which is to want the gospel for your own personal gain. Now, during the week, I wrestled with how these two, what these two stories were doing side by side. But as Luke has shown, there are two responses to the gospel, and he turns his attention back to the reader. As if he's finishing writing this story, and he breaks the fourth wall, and he looks out at us from the pages, and he says, well, now, how will you respond? How are you going to respond to the gospel? Simon represents the bad response. He wanted the Holy Spirit and the gospel for his own personal benefit. He was a magician with a big following, and it seems like he wanted that big following back. His heart was not in the right place when he asked the apostles for the gift of the Holy Spirit. He even offered money for it. Now, that sounds like a strand of Christianity that teaches this. It's called the prosperity gospel. Give to this church or give your money to this ministry and then God will sow it back into your life. Give money for personal blessing of your own. That is a wicked and evil teaching. To be clear, you cannot buy the Holy Spirit and you cannot buy blessings from God. Now, most of us here maybe won't go that far. But do we actually still believe the prosperity gospel in some form? Do we believe that if we give to God or serve him faithfully, then he must bless us in return? Recently, uh, I was chatting with someone, sharing with me their struggles with singleness. And they said to me, you know, surely after all these years of faithfully serving God, surely he would bless me with a spouse. Isn't that the same sort of thing that Simon was doing? Seeking to serve God for his own personal gain? How about ourselves? In what ways might we be responding to the gospel? In what ways might we be seeking to serve God, even today, even now, but with our desires at the center? Do we lead Bible studies to gain recognition or status? Do we serve with an eye to advancing in the church's leadership structure, even seeking to be godly so that others will see that we are godly? I'm not saying don't be godly, but what is at the heart of what we're doing? What is at the heart of why we are responding? Peter said that Simon's heart was not right. It would be good for all of us to check our hearts as well. And if we find something there, if we find ourselves, our desires in the middle, then we need to confess that and repent. Confession, faith, and repentance are the key to responding. And it's what we see in the Ethiopian eunuch. And when he jumps off his carriage to get baptized, again, he's not just going through some water ceremony. 
Baptism is the act that identifies the believer with Jesus. It says to the world that you are committing to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. Have you done that? I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm asking just simply, have you declared that Jesus is who you want to live for? Have you responded to Jesus properly? If you haven't, if you're not sure, then make sure that today is the day that you begin asking those questions, that you begin conversations about it. Over the coming weeks in the book of Acts, we'll continue to expand on what living wholeheartedly for what Jesus looks like. There's many different facets to that. But let's start first with this in our passage. The desire to identify with Jesus, to make Jesus the central and primary identifying marker of your life, not your sexuality, not your racial heritage, not your studies or degrees, not your passions or your talents, but Jesus. To make Jesus the king of your life, to make him the number one priority. Now, our passage also does give us a little bit more about, I think, a a, a particular way of living for Jesus, living wholeheartedly for him, and that's to preach the gospel, to be prepared to speak it. Preaching the gospel. You notice how the passage today begins in verse 4 with preaching. Simon's story at the end of verse 25 ends with preaching. And the eunuch story is about Philip preaching the gospel. And the end of that story in verse 40 ends with preaching as well. It's the preaching of the gospel that moves these stories forward. Speaking and teaching and proclaiming Jesus as king, going out there to preach and being directed by God to particular places to preach. This activity of push, pushes out two really unhelpful misconceptions about evangelism. Right? The first misconception, the first misconception is that God doesn't need your evangelism. This is probably best captured uh, in the story of what happened to William Carey. Uh, William Carey lived in the late 1700s and was growing a massive heart to preach the gospel in India. At a Baptist leaders meeting, he was arguing for the value of overseas mission when one of the older ministers interrupted and said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. It's this sort of belief that God is sovereign. Let him do the evangelism. And our passage today says no to that. Our passage also pushes up against another misconception, another idea. It says no to another idea. And that's the idea of I'll let my life do the talking, lifestyle evangelism, that I'll live a good, godly, blessed life, and people will come to church in Christ through that. Maybe also best captured by this misattributed quote, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. Uh, misattributed to St. Francis of Assisi, it wasn't him, uh, and just dead wrong in the first place, right? No, we've seen that believers need to be ready to preach the gospel wherever they are. The gospel comes to us with words and explanation. All of us sitting here in this room, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, at some point you heard an explanation of the gospel, If you're sitting here and you haven't been told what the gospel is, please come and speak to me after this. 
In order for people to believe, they need to hear the message. In order to hear the message, it needs to be spoken. Every believer must be ready to share this good news. Now, I believe that there are some who are more gifted than others to explain and share the gospel, but fundamentally, every believer should know enough to be able to start pointing people to Jesus and his work. Now, there's a couple of amazing things at the end here as well, a couple of amazing things about this passage that should actually just fuel our evangelism and our desire to live with Jesus as our king. The first is that the Old Testament clearly points to Jesus. When Philip met the Ethiopian, he was able to take Isaiah 53 and then point to Jesus. But remember at the end of the Gospel of Luke, right, the same author as the book of Acts, at the end there, when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, sat down with two disciples, he took the Old Testament and pointed to himself. And that means that we should be opening up every page of the Bible from the Old Testament to the New to be able to show how it points to Jesus. It's what Jesus did. It's what Peter in his first sermon in the book of Acts did at Pentecost. It's what Stephen did in his sermon before he died. It's what Philip did for this Ethiopian on the road. Now, it is hard work to learn how to do this, but it is also exciting. When you see everything that fits together and how it all points to Jesus, you will not read the Bible in any other way again. It's hard work, but it leads to joy. When the disciples on the road to Emmaus had Jesus open up the Old Testament, their hearts burned with fire. When Peter pointed to Jesus through the Old Testament, the crowd that was listening to him was cut to the heart. When Philip pointed to Jesus from Isaiah 53, the Ethiopian jumped at the chance to get baptized and then went on his way rejoicing. If you are keen to learn how everything fits together in Jesus... That is one of my deep personal passions. I would love to be able to walk you through that. There's one other final thing at the end here too, another encouragement to our evangelism. The encouragement we see is the sovereignty of God. God is a big God. He's he's powerful and he powerfully controls everything so that people will hear the gospel. Now you, you see that especially in the second part of the story. We see Philip whisked away to meet this Ethiopian But as you read the story, God's fingerprints and activity are all over it. God directed the mission. He took Stephen's death and scattered believers outside of Jerusalem. And there, God worked through his disciples to preach the gospel for many to hear. God transported Philip to and fro. God prepared the Ethiopian eunuch beforehand to embrace Yahweh and the Old Testament. And then God opened up the scroll of Isaiah for the Ethiopian to be reading and pondering just as God sent Philip walking up next to his carriage. Before we said that as a misconception that the sovereignty of God means that you don't need to evangelize, just let him do the work. But the sovereignty of God is not the enemy of evangelism. The sovereignty of God is the fuel of evangelism and mission. The sovereignty of God is to evangelism like sonar is to fishermen, right? There's two ways to go fishing. Jump in a boat, throw out your line. But we're not blindly doing that. We are directed to fish and told where to fish. And the sovereignty of God guarantees that some will be caught. All you need to do is be prepared to speak and then speak. 
God promises that some will respond. So let the God who is in control of everything in this passage give you comfort and assurance that your evangelism is never wasted. God will go fishing and you will catch something. God guarantees it. Well, that's the end of our passage. How are we going to respond? Let me pray that we'll respond rightly. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this morning and thank you for these stories. Thank you for this reminder to respond rightly, that the gospel is not for our benefit, our, the growth of our reputation, uh, our glory, our fame. The gospel is there to grow the fame of Jesus, to help us to, be, to respond rightly, to be like the eunuch who said, what is stopping me from living wholeheartedly for Jesus? May nothing stop us from doing that. Help us to faithfully respond. Help us to be curious to find out more. Continue to equip us to be able to preach your word from every part of your word. Uh, Continue to preach the gospel from every part of your word. And we ask this for your glory and our joy and our rejoicing in Jesus' name. Amen.